Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports show from RNZ Sport. I'm Barry Guy. This week, history was made in cricket with the very first day-night test and the use of a pink ball. The Crusaders coach, Todd Blackadder, announces he's to stand down in 2016. We hear from one of our champion sailors and we discuss the great year Lydia Ko has had on the golf course. Is it simply an experiment or the future of cricket? One thing everyone seems agreed up on ahead of cricket's inaugural day-night test between New Zealand and Australia in Adelaide is that it's a trip into the unknown. A controversial pink ball will be used for the match, which will be played between 2pm and 10pm local time in Adelaide. Sports editor Stephen Houston spoke to Brett Elliott, managing director of cricket company Kookaburra, which manufactured the match balls, and asked him why pink, and what's he most nervous about ahead of the historic match. We first developed the pink ball in 2006 um, for a charity match. And then um, subsequent to that, we then uh, were invited by the MCC to talk about uh, day-night test cricket. And um, one of the challenges that they were looking at is how do they play a day-night test match while still preserving the traditional clothing and characteristics of the game. So they couldn't use a white ball for obvious reasons. And um, they wanted a ball that best replicated the Red Bull. So we looked at a whole range of colours and uh, pink was was the one that they settled on. What was, I suppose, development-wise the, the biggest challenge for you? The biggest challenge has been managing the or preserving the colour of the ball through the twilight, but also at the same time allowing the ball to deteriorate throughout the course of the game. Uh, we can't design the ball, or we can make the ball so that it stays from brand new from first to last ball, but that doesn't suit the characteristics of test cricket. It would mean that we wouldn't see spin bowlers getting um, a play in the game like they do. So the ball has to naturally deteriorate in order to maintain that balance between butt and ball, and doing that with a pink ball um, presented some challenges because as it picked up some of the surrounding grass and dirt from the ground um, during its deterioration, it was more noticeable with the pink than it was with a typical red ball. The talk around the pink ball it sort of ranges from this match in Adelaide being simply an experiment to, to others saying this is the future of Test cricket. H- how do you see it? Look, I think it's an exciting development for Test cricket. And um, I think, you know... I, very hopeful that it all goes to plan and we see good typical scores and good crowds. I think Test cricket does have to make itself more accessible um, than what it currently is, and and it's in certain countries um, in particular. And I think this is a good opportunity to explore how that can be achieved. I mean, um, there are lots of Test matches around the world where capacity is, you know, 
is a long way but reached, and that's mainly because people have to work and kids go to school, and playing a day-night test match enables people to um, go to school or go to work and still catch um, much of the afternoon session. There has been a lot of talk and debate around just the, the quality of the pink ball, though, hasn't there? I mean, as to how it stands up on particular pitches. Uh, it mm. seems Adelaide may suit it better than some other pitches. Well, Adelaide's traditionally been quite an abrasive uh, spinner's wicket. Um, I think, look, the the pink balls stands up as as well as the white ball and as well as the red ball does. The, the difference is, you know, you'll always get a, a variation, the deterioration of the ball based on the abrasiveness of the pitch. So so that has been an important factor and, and the consideration in, in looking at this. Um, one of the difficulties is, is as the ball deteriorates, it picks up the markings from around the ground and that has a bigger impact in the visibility or is more noticeable on the ball when it's a light colour like white or pink than it does when it's a red ball. But it's all happening to the red ball at the same time as well. So do you need to still develop the ball? We will go away from this test match and we will look at um, the players' feedback and we'll look at the umpires' feedback and talk to the cricketing authorities and I guess we'll all do some analysis and see how we can continue to develop and refine and improve the format. So um, I'm sure there will be feedback and we'll take all that on board and if there are improvements to be made, then we'll make them. What are you most nervous about with this test match? Um, Well, I'm quite excited by it. Um, I think the the one thing I'm hoping for the most is that we see... um, typical scores, typical run rates, typical performances coming out of it. What I'd hate to see is a two-day test match like we saw in in, uh, in England recently in the Ashes series or um, three-day test matches. Um, I think that would be disastrous. Um, so for me, I'm really hoping that we'll see a full five-days cricket and even balance between bat and ball and players get their kind of, are able to make runs and bowlers can take wickets. Brett Elliott of Kookaburra talking to Stephen Hewson. This week, the Crusaders coach Todd Blackadder announced that the 2016 Super Rugby season would be his last with the franchise. Blackadder took over in 2009, and while they've made the final twice and the semi-finals four times, in his tenure, the Crusaders have been unable to add to the title hall of seven. Todd Nile asked Blackadder if this announcement made it easier or harder for him in 2016. Oh, I think what it really does for me is just takes all the distractions away. I mean, something that we've learned in the last couple of years is the distractions have really had a real impact on our campaign. So I suppose by announcing it just makes it really clear so there's no speculation. And I think it's uh, every year is always a challenge. But if anything, I think if, if we've learned anything from the last couple of years, hopefully we can take that forward and you know, 2016 will be an exciting one for us because we've certainly got some... I think we've got 11 new players, there's some new talent, and um, you know we've got one more crack to get it right, really. If you'd had to, or if you had walked away now, how would you have looked back on the last seven seasons? With what sort of feelings? Oh, with mixed emotions, to be honest. If I walked away today, it would be like, you know, really proud of um, a lot of the stuff we've done, more proud than disappointed, yet to be sort of like a, a little bit of a mixed bag of unfinished business. I think that... At times we've played to our potential, and at times you know we haven't. And I think if anything, um, 
you know, next year we've got a real opportunity to right a few of the wrongs. And, you know, for me is to, you know, um, to learn a little bit about what we've done from the past, implement implement that going forward. And, you know, like, for example, like, yeah, get off to a better start would be nice. You're going to have to do the season. You know, some of those have moved on. Uh, Richie McCaw, Dan Carter. You've got a, a new crew to work with. Yeah, we have. And I think for the Crusaders, it's really exciting. I think... Um, you know, when I talk about distractions, we're talking about two really good men, but you know their focus was more in a different campaign, and we're all delighted to see them uh, go on and, and be so successful with the All Blacks. But we've had those players in the Crusaders and a lot, lot, lot more other players too in the Crusaders in the last couple of years. Last year, and we had 13 All Blacks, but that wasn't, you know, it didn't always mean that the Crusaders were successful. So what I'm really saying is that next, next year we actually get to start with a clean slate and and start a game, which would be fantastic. And I guess you'll be putting a lot of pressure on yourself. You've got one more season to do it, I guess. Yeah, well, that's right, and that's another way of looking at it. Like, someone with nothing to lose can be often very dangerous, but you know, I'm just looking for, to really um, you know, lead the team well, make sure that this team is well and truly motivated and, and wants to play for each other. I think that's the, the key, is the feeling that they get in the dressing, dressing sheds that they take that out on the park and want to play good football for each other. And I think at this level, it's often the difference between winning and losing. Putting that decision out there now, does it create a bit of a risk? Let's say the season didn't get off to a good start for whatever reason. People will go, well, he's going, go now sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? You know, I made this decision more for my team, you know, to put the team first. The last thing I would want is, for example, the team to be put under pressure and, I suddenly become the focus, um, and then that puts the team under a huge amount of pressure. I think this, we're in a tough competition, regardless of um, who's at the helm. And it's not so much about me, to be honest. But hey, it is what it is, and um, destiny's within our own hands. But I think by putting it out there, it's a bit of a yin and yang. And what we really, did, what we didn't really want to create is a lot of speculation whether things are going well or they're not, and then it becomes a real focal point. Whereas putting it out there now, everyone, it's really been really transparent with our stakeholders, our supporters and their players and um, you know, we've got one more chance to, uh, well I've only got one more chance to get it right and I'll be giving it my very best. Todd Blackadder and you're listening to Extra Time on RNZ Sport. A five-year licence has been granted to a private investor to run the Highlanders Super Rugby franchise. The Highlanders are the last of the five New Zealand franchises to have private investors. The South Island Private Investor Group is headed by Dunedin businessman Matthew Davey, founder and CEO of ticketing agency Ticket Direct. Davey, a Canadian who has lived here for close to 20 years, says it was an obvious investment opportunity and he wanted to make sure the Highlanders stayed put. The opportunity um, uh, presented itself uh, largely around, um, uh, I guess, our knowledge of uh, another uh, offer which had been made on the Highlanders uh, from, uh, from a group out of Singapore. And uh, with my, my association with the team over the past 16 years, it's, it's been a, a true uh, affair of, of the heart. And um, to, be, uh, to be given, uh, I guess, a business opportunity that uh, um, is a, a great opportunity uh, on its own as a, um, as a business investment. But uh, combining my, my passion of the Highlanders and ensuring that there was no doubt that the Highlanders would stay in the South, that was uh, the, uh, the the goal in terms of uh, the steps that we've taken over the past year. There is a group of you 
was it uh, difficult or challenging to get a group together to make sure that the Highlanders, you know, stayed where they were? Uh, I've got a, a great group of friends who uh, who all love rugby, who have all got a close association with uh, with the South, uh, uh, Dunedin and Invercargill, and uh, and um, uh, rugby in the Deep South. So uh, uh, bringing them together w- was actually uh, uh, probably the, uh, the the quickest bit uh, of this. Uh, I think we had uh, uh, immediate agreement from uh, from everybody uh, on the team. It was uh, uh, it was uh, really encouraging. Uh, that um, the uh, the desire and drive to keep uh, the Highlanders in the South was uh, um, resonating so well with the group. What about the numbers? I mean, you obviously have to put a, a, a lot into this, but you'll be hoping to get at least something out of it. Yeah, look, uh, from from that side, Barry, um, uh, it is a, um, a business a business decision that stands up uh, on its uh, on its own two feet. Um, we are certainly um, investing uh, significant capital into the Highlanders, and that's very much around uh, um, providing uh, um, the uh, the resources for for more innovation, uh, more growth going forward. Um, this this team has built a, uh, a culture of uh, of success here, and uh, Roger uh, Clark, uh, the former board. Um, the, the coaching staff, the team, the top to bottom of this organization is, is first rate and has uh, done uh, an amazing amount with very little. And uh, what we contribute here is uh, some, uh, some of our own personal skills um, around uh, um, rugby and business um, uh, at, uh, at a global level and um, uh, give, uh, give the team on the ground uh, uh, some more resources to do even more. So it's uh, really exciting from that side. What about, I mean, uh, sponsors from the area and also crowd? You know, uh, it's a it's a smallish sort of market. Yeah, look, uh, um, I have to give massive thanks to uh, to all the fans here who have uh, uh, continued supporting uh, the Highlanders year after year, and uh, um, the uh, uh, the obvious uh, um, uh, benefit of, of winning the title is uh, is driving uh, even. Uh, uh, more membership uh, sales uh, going forward, so we're, we're looking at, uh, at an amazing year for 2016. Um, so from uh, from that side of things, uh, uh, it's uh, it's incredibly encouraging. What are you going to change? Probably nothing. <laughs> um, the, the reality, Barry, is is that uh, uh, we're not here to, to change things. Uh, I think uh, the only um, the only substantive change is that we've uh, uh, we've offered uh, Roger the um, uh, the uh, official title of uh, CEO rather than uh, general manager. Uh, and certainly, as uh, um, a uh, uh, I guess a mark of uh, respect for uh, uh, what uh, what he's achieved here uh, across the board. And uh, going forward, um, the, the aim is to, to provide more resources rather than rather than change anything. So, in five years' time, how would you like to see the franchise? Oh, mate, uh, I'd uh, I'd like to see the uh, the new trophy cabinet uh, bursting at the seams. <laughs> You're listening to Extra Time on RNZ Sport. Eric Murray and Hamish Bond are the dominant men in rowing with their unbeaten run, and Blair Tuke and Peter Burling must be their equivalent in sailing. Tuke and Burling defended their 49er world title in Buenos Aires this week, their third straight title in the class. Since their silver medal at the 2012 London Olympics, the pair have dominated the class and their run of regatta victories now stands at 22. I caught up with Tuke after their win in Buenos Aires and he says it was a great way to finish an impressive year. Yeah, this guy's this the world champion uh, Argentina until the last, last big event for us for the year, so yeah, it has been a busy year for us. Successful one, um, you know, not just with the results, but with what we 
learn and the things we put in place as we head towards uh, the Olympics next year. So now we're, uh, you know, we'll go back and debrief this this one um, well, and you know, as always, we do as we can improve on. So we'll look to look to see where we can do that, and then uh, you know, sort of plan out the tax for the next ten months. Everything is obviously going well for you on the water. You know, as you prepare for the Olympics. Do you tinker with anything sort of off, you know, the way you prepare yourself, or do you just sort of go, right, it's going well, let's just carry on as we're doing now? No, you have to keep keep getting better. You can never never think, you know, if we thought for a moment that we could just keep chugging away as we are now, then, you know, there's no, no way we'd, you know, win a gold medal next year, I don't think. So we'll, uh, you know, we'll keep getting better. We'll keep, you know, to a certain extent, you don't want to... Um, you know, change stuff that is going well, but you want to keep keep you in bed and not make any big big changes in the way you sail the boat or in sort of the equipment you use or anything like that. But um, so you have to get better in all aspects of the of the sport if you if you, you know if you want to be in the place to win a gold medal this year. Uh, you and Peter have had some America's Cup involvement. I mean, will that continue? Does that help? Yeah, it's been uh, so far. It's been really. Um, good having the involvement with uh, New Zealand. You know, learn a lot from being involved with, with the team and something that's helped out our 49er sailing and uh, also, you know, just having a lot of smart people within that organisation and, you know, we get to learn off, off them and, you know, also it's a good team. It's good having us out there sort of um, racing in the Olympic classes, you know, at the highest level and it sort of keeps the sailing skills at you know, people are getting up and it sort of, you know, encourages the other guys and say the team to get out and go sailing and, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good vibe you know, on the team at the moment and, uh, you know, hopefully we can continue that. And so what about, um, you come back to New Zealand now, do you have a bit, a bit of a break or is the summer a time to, um, you know, work on a few things here? Yeah, we've got a pretty busy time back in NZ when we uh, head back between, sort of, the end of November and, and the Christmas break, so we've, uh, a bit going on with Team New Zealand, uh, sort of sailing on Auckland Harbour, which will be cool on the Soiling 45. Um, it'll be good to get out there and show the public that, you know what these Soiling boats are like again. They haven't really seen them since the big Sydney 2 was out at the start of 2013, so that'll be great. And um, As well as that, we've got some 49 things we need to do before before we have sort of a couple of weeks off over Christmas New Year, so they'll be, you know, straight back into it for us really but then also knowing that only month around the corner will get a nice little break so that'll be good. Blair Tuke and Peter Burling will defend their 49er world title in just three months time in Florida. The strongest field in the history of the tournament has been unveiled for the ASB Women's Tennis Classic in Auckland in January. The former world number one and Grand Slam champion Anna Ivanovic has been included, joining Venus Williams and Caroline Wozniacki who had already signed on for the tournament. Ivanovic won the Auckland tournament in 2014, beating Williams in the final, and will be seeded second for the tournament. Tournament director Carl Budge is delighted to have secured the big names and says the depth of the field couldn't have been any stronger. This is as good as you could ever hope for. To, you know, if, if you get one player in the top 20, you, you, you're happy. Two's a, a, a good result. Um, for us to have three and three of those to be superstars is amazing and then to still have a, a really strong depth all top eight seeds well inside the top 50 in the world um, and a cut off of 77 is, uh, is pretty impressive so if you compare that to a golf tournament in New Zealand if you've got one player in the top 100 you'd be delighted we've got all of them inside the top 77 so happy 
In comparison to the other tournaments, I mean, this is a busy time of the year for tennis. Uh, how does this compare to the tournament in Brisbane and Shenzhen? Yeah, really favourably. Um, Brisbane, I think, has got a cut of 42. Um, considering they're four times our prize money and, and double ranking points, it's, um, it's a pretty good result for us. And well ahead of Shenzhen, despite it being double our prize money as well. So, um, yeah, we've got a cut, I think, 30-odd places or 40-odd places ahead of, uh, of Shenzhen. So, yeah, it's great to see that these players wanted to kick off the year in Auckland. And, you know, I guess when you get the likes of Serena, oh, sorry, Venus, Anna and Caroline, it certainly makes um, your life a hell of a lot easier and sends a pretty clear signal to the rest of the dressing room. Was it hard getting people like Anna and Svetlana across the line, considering Brisbane might have been, a, you know, a slightly better choice for them, considering it is, you know, in Australia before the Australian Open? Yeah, look, it's it's one of those things that every player is different. Um, we're lucky that we've got some pretty strong relationships with those girls. That's why you invest in them, um, and you, you spend a lot of time throughout the course of the year. Um, making sure they know who you are, making sure you know what you can offer them and, um, and make sure they're feeling as relaxed as they can. Um, you know, and it, it's pleasing to see when it does come off. But uh, you know, they're, they're seasoned players now too. They know what their schedule what's, uh, fits best for them and we know what the real prize is and that's, that's the Aussie Open. So if we can help them in their preparations for Melbourne, and, uh, you know, we're going to go pretty well and keep getting uh, top talent. Who would you say are some of the uh, dark horses that are coming into this tournament? Some of the names that people might not necessarily be so familiar with, but you know ex- you expect probably to do quite well. Yeah, look, I think the two Americans are, are the ones that um, that I'm, I'm pretty nervous to see where they they come out on the draw. Uh, Sloane Stephens knocked out Serena from the Australian Open in the quarterfinals a couple of years ago. It's been as high as 11 in the world, and certainly one of those next generation um, that will probably come up and take that mantelpiece of of the Serenas and Venuses, um, and Coco Vandeweghe as well. Um, she's a really heavy hitter, very powerful girl, and uh, you know, if she if she starts the year off uh, on a roll, she'll be very, very hard to beat here. And I guess finally, can we expect to see a New Zealand contingent at the ASB Classic next year? Yeah, look, I think so. Um, you know, we always switch our attention to wildcards now that the full field's done, but um, look, there's no question Marina wants to start a year here, and, and we desperately would like her to as well, so um, that seems a bit of a no-brainer that we'll lock away over the next couple of weeks, but uh, yeah, definitely want to uh, make sure Marina has every opportunity to, to show Auckland just how good she is, because uh, I don't think she gets uh, as appreciated as she should be as a tennis player and as an athlete in New Zealand. So here's hoping she can show just how good she really is. That's Auckland tennis director Carl Budge. This is Extra Time. A number of young players have been named in the New Zealand Sevens women's team to compete at the opening tournament of the International Seven Series in Dubai next week. There's just one new cap in the side with a selection of Niall Williams who comes from a very talented family. Her big brother is all-black Sonny Bill Williams, who's also attempting to make the men's sevens team for Rio. The younger Williams, who represented New Zealand at touch rugby, has spent the last three and a half years transitioning from the touch format to tackle rugby. The 27-year-old mother of two spoke to media this week about the pressures she faces living up to the Williams' name. The only pressure that's on me is what I put on myself. And, um, you know, speaking to my brother... um, he, he just said go out and have fun, so yeah, it's just more about the experience rather than thinking about the name. Was that the advice he gave you? Yeah, definitely. He just said, you know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity um, just to enjoy the journey more so. Um, don't overcomplicate things and uh, just have fun, yeah. But you, are, you are saddled with the label. How hard is that for you? Oh, yeah. Fair bit of my life I've been called Sonny Bull Williams' little sister, but uh, it's nice to try and make a name for myself. And, um, you know, maybe someone might call him Niall Williams' brother. (laughs)
<laughs> What's been the hardest thing about transitioning from touch to sevens? Uh, probably the uh, tackle tech, um, just getting that right. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've got some mongrel in me, or else I wouldn't be playing, but uh, I grew up with two big brothers, you know, so, um, but yeah, just getting the technical side of that would be uh, probably the hardest thing. Have you been able to feel as though you've naturally fit into this sort of format, the sevens format? Yeah, I think a lot of uh, the touch skills and um, yeah uh, crosses over, you know, with the skill set, uh, footwork, agility, speed, fitness. Yeah. So. How special would it be if you and your brother both went to Rio and represented New Zealand? Oh, it, you know, I, I I can't really describe that if that would ever happen. That's a a very big goal and um, I mean Olympics is the pinnacle of sports and any athlete, any brothers or anybody would be proud to go there but yeah that would be something special wouldn't it <laughs> You talk about uh, your, your brother giving you some tips how, how does he go about that, do you just chat about it does he sort of give you demonstrations on how you should do things, offer you tactics or uh, how does it work uh, Yeah uh, we chat about it every now and again um, probably more so on the casual side we don't like to get too caught up in, in all that stuff but um, I mean you know a little shoulder budge here and there down the hallway <laughs> stuff like that we're, we're pretty easy and um, if we have any questions for each other we just bounce off each other pretty much yeah. That's New New Zealand Sevens representative Niall Williams. The world golf number one Lydia Ko capped off another impressive season by claiming the player of the year award and with it a one and a half million dollar bonus. This year Ko won six times five on the LPGA Tour and once on the European Tour, which happened to be the New Zealand Open. She also claimed her first ever major title, the Evian Championship in France. RNZ's golf reporter Matt Chatterton told me in 2015 she managed to improve on her rookie season, which was no mean feat, and she managed to get that major win under her belt. Yeah, there was a little bit of talk around, I suppose, New Zealand sport media that could she possibly have a voodoo and majors be her weakness? But I think, you know, in the build-up to all these tournaments, you could always see there was promise there that she was going to eventually get across the line, especially back when she was just an amateur at the age of about 16 or 17 when she finished second at the Evian a few years ago. To go and be able to do that uh, now, this year, in the same course, uh, I mean, obviously she's very familiar with it, but it's just it just shows, you know, her drive and just how good she is. I mean, most people might get put off by the fact that they are struggling in these big tournaments, but I think it really motivated Lydia, and she certainly proved that she is, uh, is one of the uh, best on tour. What is it about her that makes her so successful, and therefore what can we expect from her next year? Probably one of the big things is her attitude. She has a very calm demeanour on the golf course. Uh, she always seems to have a smile every time you see a camera shot of her. And just her all-around game is just very, very tidy. Like She is one of the most accurate uh, ball strikers on tour. She doesn't necessarily hit it too fast. She only averages about 250 yards at best off the tee, um, which is roughly you know about 220 metres. But it's just that consistency with her iron play. Like she, she hits, you know, greens and regulation unlike any other person on tour. She, she makes putts, which is, you know, that as they say, you know, drive for show, putt for dough. That is the uh, big, big uh, win there, I suppose, for Lydia is that she is such a strong putter. But yeah, just from, from the fairway to the green, she is, uh, yeah, you wouldn't find many people better than her.
New Zealand Golf hopes to confirm her in the next couple of days for the defence of her New Zealand Open title in February. I suppose, realistically, is that the only chance we can expect to see her at home? Yeah, that is unfortunately the case for uh, New Zealand fans. She does obviously have commitments uh, with sponsors here in New Zealand as well. She is sponsored uh, by a few businesses back here in New Zealand. So she does come out at, towards the end of the year and do some events with uh, young children. But in terms of actual uh, golf tournaments, the New Zealand Open is the only real chance we get to see her because at the end of the day, the New Zealand Open is the only the biggest only tournament in New Zealand that's big enough to attract someone like Lydia back here. And, I mean, it is co-sanctioned with the European Tour and the Australian Ladies uh, PGA, but, yeah, it's, it doesn't quite attract the same uh, talent from the LPGA here because, number one, the points on offer for world rankings is a lot lower because the field isn't as strong, and number two, the prize money, which is, I mean, something that Lydia probably isn't too concerned about. But yes, for other other LPGA pros, it's a bit of a turn-off. And I mean, also, it is quite a long way to come all the way to New Zealand. Uh, you know, you're travelling from America. There's quite a bit of travel time involved. And then you've got to actually play in the tournament. And then you're off to somewhere in Asia or Australia after that. And you're, uh, it's, it's quite a busy period as well. There are about six or seven tournaments on around the same time as the New Zealand Open on the LPGA. So she's really got to yeah, sort of commit herself to it if she wants to come back. I suppose she's in the fortunate situation that she's not having to chase uh, money or merit point rankings to keep her place on a tour. So she's able to pick and choose a bit where she wants to play? Yes, because she is so successful in the fact that she's won so many tournaments, she's pretty much guaranteed her LPGA Tour card for at least another two or three years. So she can make those decisions to come back and play at the New Zealand Open. And I think she really does enjoy coming back because she gets to see her friends and family that are here. And she also gets to see the big, large crowds that come out to see her. And of course, she is playing at Clearwater, which is one of uh, one of the South Island's better golf courses. So it is an all-round uh, good opportunity for her to come back. That's RNZ's golf reporter, Matt Chatterton. That's extra time for this week. You can follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport, or you can email us sport at radionz.co.nz. Bye for now. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.